Hello and welcome to this edition of our 7 Investing Podcast. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson. There are a lot of emotionally charged headlines out there right now. We've seen that Biden has been sworn in as the newest American president. We've seen a surge of activity in SPACs. We've seen Bitcoin hitting all-time highs, and we've even seen Arnold Schwarzenegger now getting his COVID vaccine. These are all attention-grabbing headlines, but they might not mean the most for us as long-term investors. And so our question, our perspective for our team this month is what is one underappreciated story that's not making headlines, but that long-term investors should be paying attention to? And also, what is one company that might actually benefit from this underappreciated story? So we're really doubling down on trying to find the actual signal and filtering out the noise for investors this month. I'm going to put myself first on, on the list for this one. And, and give my story is I think that semiconductor M&A is underappreciated in the market right now. And before your eyes glaze over and you turn this podcast off, because that's just too boring of a topic, we've seen some really, really big acquisitions taking place. We've seen NVIDIA spend $40 billion to acquire ARM Holdings. We've seen AMD spend $35 billion to acquire Xilinx. We've seen a, a host of other companies that aren't even known, like Maxim Integrated Products being acquired for $21 billion. Uh, the list goes on and on. This was actually the semiconductor industry's second largest year on record for M&A. And I think that this has some inc incredible consequences for investors because these customized chips are not just going into our own personal electronic devices and our smartphones like this, but they're increasingly powering the internet. You know, software is now hosted in data centers that are in the cloud. And these are using highly customized chips that are powering uh, all of these sites. You know, it's just kind of getting more and more design is, is more and more important for these companies. And when you're looking at something at the scale of like Google or Amazon Web Services or any of these cloud providers, even just a 1% reduction in cost savings of powering those servers and powering those data centers is, is a huge, financially a huge savings. And so I think that we're, we're starting to see the semiconductor industry. It's not just all about cost, but as we're getting more and more uh, focused on AI as the demands for software and of data centers and whatever these chips are empowering are increasing, uh, we're seeing more and more of, of an interest in a lot of these chip makers branching out of CPUs, trying new different designs, GPUs, FPGAs, whatever it might be, uh, looking at some new different architectures like 3D architectures, and really kind of creativity is re-entering the semiconductor space. And one company that I think that's really going to benefit from this is AMD. AMD has always been second fiddle for Intel uh, and CPUs. It's always been second fiddle to NVIDIA and GPUs. We saw them acquire Xilinx, which are highly configurable and programmable chips. Their FPGAs is what they're called. But I think that this is really going to bring them into a kind of a, a, a renaissance um, for AMD, which has always kind of just been this discrete chip maker. I think they're going to start offering more and more options for developers who really want to use customized hardware. And so Max Chatsko, I'm going to go to you next. Uh, you know, what is your underappreciated story and maybe a company that might benefit from that? All right. Well, thanks, Simon. If you didn't fall asleep from Simon's talk, mine will surely do the <laughs> trick here. Um, so my story is that, you know, genomics isn't the only omics out there. And that matters a lot to investors. You know, we hear a lot about, um, you know, these marketing terms that kind of have come up in the last year. Um, you know, the genomic revolution, or we see it a lot in the questions we get for our live shows, Seven Investing Now, or, you know, in, in messages I get on Twitter, or emails I get directly, 
you know, all oh, this genomics stock, this genomics biotech stock, we see the word genomics again and again. And to me, as a scientist, as an engineer, I've seen this happen a lot with technical terms in the past. And now it's happened to the word genomics, right? It gets applied to everything. And that means it means nothing at the same time, right? Uh, we hear people talk about, well, genomics, and they apply that to CRISPR gene editing. We hear about genomics, and they apply that to liquid biopsies. We hear about genomics, and they apply that to DNA sequencing, and on and on. And really, you know, this term doesn't really apply to all of these things. We're just kind of lazily and sloppily applying it uh, to mean everything at the same time. Um, and the problem here for investors is that this is very surface level information most of the time. Uh, so it kind of, um, you know, if, if you're not looking deeper into the nuance and the context of some of these companies that you want to own or researching or the technology platforms that they're developing, you're going to miss some big opportunities because you're only focusing on genomics. Uh, so I focused on the specific examples of the liquid biopsy market. Um, <clears throat> so genomics plays an important role there, right? We need to understand, um, well, let's back up for a second, right? Omics, any omics is uh, understanding how systems of a specific uh, entity in biology is affecting the function of a living thing, right? So genomics is the understanding of how systems of genes affect biologic function. So obviously it's an important omics to know about, um, you know, and it's, it plays a huge role in liquid biopsies, right? We're trying to detect these small signals of something called uh, cell-free DNA that's circulating in a patient's blood. And we're trying to detect their cancer right now, as well as more invasive biopsy approaches. And the goal of course, is to be able to take a simple blood test and find cancers that are in earlier stages of development, even when they're not showing symptoms in the patient. Uh, so they'll be easier to treat, uh, less invasive to treat, maybe even we can put it into remission for good. Uh, so it has a tremendous value, right? But in order to do that, it's a very difficult data problem. We're gonna need to find other types of omics uh, in order to achieve that holy grail of liquid biopsies. And again, if you're only focusing on genomics, you're gonna miss some of these recent moves um, that companies in the liquid biopsy space have been making to position themselves for the future, right? Uh, so there's something called epigenomics. So that's understanding how genomes or systems of genes uh, affect biologic function when the genes are turned on or off. Um, so we saw Garden Health in 2019 make the acquisition of Bellwether Bio. That was just a simple press release. It was kind of a small company at the time. But that's a very important technology platform that Garden Health now has uh, to leverage for this, this problem. Um, you know, we see proteomics. So that's understanding how systems of proteins affect biologic function. Uh, and this is exactly the reason that Exact Sciences acquired Thrive Early Detection. It just closed earlier this year. That was announced in late 2020. Um, so that's an important technology to add to its stack for understanding these problems. Uh, and then there's other things like transcriptomics. That's understanding how systems of RNA affect biologic function. We're probably gonna need that in addition to the proteomics. Um, so again, if you're not following um, you know, these companies and understanding more of the nuance and context of other omics that come into play and you're only focusing on genomics, you're gonna miss all the nuance of what these companies are doing how they're positioning themselves for the future. Uh, so by understanding this, uh, this is my closing thought, you know, I would argue that, you know, the ranking as of right now would be exact sciences and then garden health and then grail and then the rest of the field. But I think, you know, if you're only following genomics, 
um, you might rank that as like Grail being the first or the best because that's kind of it's it's more marketed, it's kind of more hyped up. Uh, but I wouldn't put it in the first two uh, leadership positions uh, in my current rankings. Uh, and that's because, you know, you have to understand some of the other advances that are going on in the field. Yeah, great points, Max. And like you said, genomics kind of a catch-all phrase out there, but the science behind what that's actually impacting, uh, really something important for us to understand as long-term investors. Of course, Austin, Lieberman, I'll come to you next here. You were pointing out that checks mix is probably getting more attention than genome mix right now. Uh, what's one other underappreciated story that, that is on your radar as an investor? Yeah, Simon, I think the checks mix things is mostly just because uh, I'm constantly thinking about what my kids are going to eat next and they, uh, they seem to always, or I try to go for the easy breakfast cereal. Um, but I'll try to teach him about genomics now that, now that Max just, just taught me more about it. Uh, yeah, so mine's a little bit simpler, and it was something that uh, my brain could comprehend. And I think there's an interesting opportunity out there in cellular connectivity. And when I think about that industry, I think about uh, you know coverage providers like Verizon or AT&T or even T-Mobile. And out of companies like that, as an investor, I'm really not interested in those companies because they're all, you know, very large. Um, and though those stocks have done pretty well and they, uh, I think a couple of them pay dividends. I just don't see them as, as long-term companies that I want to own just because of how large those companies already are. But, uh, as access to high-speed internet and cellular connectivity has spread to many parts of the globe, um, it's easy to feel like the entire world has access to those services. Uh, but even in the United States, there's many coverage gaps for wireless networks. And so uh, more than 5 billion mobile phones move in and out of coverage. And still, even today, roughly 50% of the global population is without mobile broadband access. So over the next several years, I think we're going to see investors start to pay a lot more attention to the growth opportunities in kind of covering those gaps in the cellular, cellular connectivity market. And one company that I think is going to benefit from that over the next decade is New Providence Acquisition Corps. NPA is the ticker. Uh, it's a special acquisition company. So a SPAC that everyone's talking about these days, which makes me a little hesitant about it. But uh, I think there's some great SPACs out there. And I think this is one with um, potentially, you know, a lot of upside. Definitely not an official seven investing recommendation that, that I think has a lot of um, opportunity. Um, so it brought a uh, AST Space Mobile to the public market. That's the company that changed into uh, NPA. And AST Space Mobile owns the first and only space-based cellular broadband network that provides coverage everywhere, or at least that's the plan over time as they invest and grow their network. Um, and it's compatible with all 5 billion existing mobile phones. So there are some networks out there that have provided this type of coverage, but generally you've had that own a certain type of device that gives you that connectivity. This and the model for them is they're trying to partner with uh, some of the largest cellular providers in the world and just offer their coverage almost as like gap coverage for when their customers go out of their cellular network, they get a little notification on their phone that says you're uh, extending beyond your, you know, your normal network. Do you want to activate AST space mobile? They hit yes and then they've, they have much better coverage. And so this is great on the sea, out in the desert, and all different kinds of places in the world. Uh, the company has more than 750 patent claims, um, and, it, and it's, it's building a network of, of satellites to provide coverage anywhere in the world. Um, still a risky company, 
uh, but they're expecting to own $181 million or earn $181 million in revenue by 2023. And then just to give you the idea of the growth potential, that was $181 million. And then $9.6 billion by 2027. So uh, quite a growth curve if they're able to achieve that. Uh, so that's what I like. That's a, you know, no one's really talking about that, that industry or that opportunity. And then I haven't seen a lot of people talking about this company either. Great. Thanks very much, Austin. NPA, like you were mentioning, uh, addressing the cellular gaps right now in our infrastructure. Uh, Dan Klein, let's come to you next. First of all, any thoughts about the telecom industry as we transition into your underappreciated space right after that? Yeah, I'm actually pretty bullish on T-Mobile. I, I, I think, you know, I don't know that their television product is going to work, but it's an interesting play. But I do think being the uh, the mobile phone company that customers actually like is an inherent advantage. The reason I don't own it is the second you finish 5G, you have to build 6G. And then it's an endless capital structure. So it's a really well-run company. That being said, I just think the structure of their industry pretty much always makes it like my fourth or fifth pick in a month, never like my top pick, but it's made my list pretty much every month. So I'm going to talk about something uh, many of you probably haven't heard of. That's uh, stores, brick and mortar retail. No, I'm kidding. I, I tend to deal in the, 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 the sort of more, uh, more real stuff. So you've all heard it, the retail apocalypse, the internet, Amazon is coming and it's crushing. It's a lie. It's not true. Brick and mortar retail remains a major opportunity. So let's look at the numbers. In 2019, you, Simon, you probably heard me quote this number like 6,000 times. In 2019, 13.4% of all sales were done on the internet. So that meant that roughly 96% of all sales, or 86% of all sales were done in stores. Lots of stores are closing, but let's look at those stores. Why did say Sears close? Why did JCPenney close? Go to a Sears, go to a JCPenney, and you'll know why. Bad mixes of merchandise, really dumb decisions. I mean, you can go back to the Ron Johnson era at JCPenney when they angered all their customers. What retailers are struggling? They tend to be the retailers that don't have a plan, that didn't adjust for changing customer habits. So what happened during the pandemic? Wow, during the pandemic, we did all our shopping online, right? All of it. No, at the height of the pandemic, 20% of our shopping was online. And very likely two years from now, that's going to be about the mix, 80%, 20%. So what's the opportunity? The opportunity is to run really good experiential retail, meaning stores that it's fun to walk around. So I'll give a couple examples. Marshalls, which is a, a TJX company, and, and all the TJX companies use this you know, particular strategy. My mother doesn't go to Marshalls because she needs a sweater. My mother goes to Marshalls to see what they might have. And she might come out with a shirt for me, some socks for herself, who knows what. It's fun to go there. Well, you're not going to want that experience online. It's not going to be the same. Even, you know, I use Amazon's Woot, which is a, a treasure hunt kind of thing, but it's not as fun as walking into a, a Best Buy and seeing what's on the clearance table. So who are the big winners going to be in this space? It's retail that serves very specific niches. So Dollar General. Dollar General tends to serve underserved communities. It tends to serve people who maybe they can't afford a 30 pack of toilet paper all at once. And they're just going to, you know, buy it. I know that sounds bad, but that is their market. 
when they open a store, they know exactly what it's going to get to profitability, exactly what its ceiling is going to be. And then they open a thousand more stores every year. And now they're spinning into different retail concepts. They have a like sort of a home furnishings, not, not furnishings as much as home stuff, let's call it, concept that they're rolling out. The one I think is going to be the biggest winner though, uh, and I, and I, I wish... It, I, I wish I had uh, had bought this sooner, but I, I do own some personally, is five below. Uh, so five below, the concept is everything in the store is below $5, except some of their stores have a, a an above section now that sells things like video games and maybe higher end puzzles. But for the most part, and you walk in and there's some things you're always going to get. There's always going to be headphones. There's always going to be, uh, you know, movie theater size candy, but a lot of the merchandise changes. So you go to five below and you go with your kid and you're like, all right, we're going to spend 10 bucks today. And we're all going to leave with like three things we find enjoyable. So <laughs> I am a big fan of this idea that it's it's shopping is entertainment. It's not expensive. So, you know, most of us have kids here. You're always looking for things you can do with your kids that you can placate them. They feel like they got a lot. And it, oh, it's like, and it cost me a dollar eighty. My son bought a, a Japanese soda at, at five below and we looked around for 45 minutes. Obviously, looking around now is going to be a little more truncated than looking around when not in a pandemic. But there's plenty of opportunity in brick and mortar retail. Costco isn't going anywhere. Target, which does a wonderful job online and with curbside pickup, it's still a great experience to go to a Target, especially the new ones with the Disney stores and the, the really well-done liquor stores that sell local beer. So anybody who tells you brick and mortar is over, these are the same people that told you that all reading was going to move to the Kindle. When the answer is about half did, it's not going to be half with retail. It might someday get to 25, 30%. But even then there's going to be plenty of room for brick and mortar retailers. That's yeah, me. Great, great points, Dan. Five below. Definitely a lot of these brick and mortar retailers finding reasons for you to go back and experience the shopping uh, rather than just buying things online. Matt Cochran, I'll come to you next. Before we get into your underappreciated uh, sector and company, any thoughts about the retail industry like Dan was just mentioning? Yeah, as far as the the, the physical sales mix and the online sales mix, like that line's just getting increasingly blurred, right? I mean, like, what does it count as e-commerce if you pay for it on an app, but then go to the store to pick it up? Or like if it's sitting in a locker for you to pick up, or if you pay for it at the store, but then later it's delivered to your house. Like, it's just that line. I think it's just, it's just basically commerce, right? Like, I, I think at some point that line's going to get so blurred, it's going to be really hard to distinguish yeah. between the two. Yeah. Let, let me jump in, Matt. So I bought a new TV recently. Um, and I bought it at Walmart and I physically went to look at it in a Walmart and then I ordered it on walmart.com. It's a 65 inch television, gigantic. Now I might not have purchased it because it was very inexpensive. It was like $349 before Christmas. If I hadn't been able to physically see it, I might not have purchased it. So is that an online sale or is it really a brick and mortar sale? Because I did go to the store. I just didn't, I don't have the ability to drive a 65 inch television home. I would have had to carry it home. You know, so I do think you're right that this is going to get very, very squishy going forward. Yeah. Man, that uh, that expensive section of five below, they should call it high five. <laughs> uh, next time I'm talking to the CEO of five below, I will suggest that. <laughs> Dad right. joke for the win, Austin. That was uh, I mean, way to go out. <laughs> uh, one headline uh, you won't see anytime soon, but which I think is an undeniable trend is that financial inclusion defined as people with accounts and access to basic financial services is higher than at any other time in history, 
and is only going to rise from here. Uh, in 2018, the World Bank reported that 69% of the world's population, that's about 3.8 billion people, now had an account with a financial institution or a mobile money provider. In 2011, that figure was only 51%, which means that like between 2011 and 2018, 1.2 billion people opened an account. Uh, financial inclusion has exploded from like global smartphone penetration and, and mobile technology, uh, which has effectively put like a bank and digital payment capabilities in everyone's pocket around the world. Uh, this is important because basic financial services uh, make it easier for people to save money, uh, manage financial emergencies, and invest. And those without these financial services have to rely on cash, which is unsafe and can be really difficult to use for uh, a lot of those things like investing. Uh, even access to a simple mobile money service can make a big difference, according to the World Bank. This is a quick excerpt from one of their reports. A study in Kenya found that access to mobile money services delivered big benefits, especially for women. It enabled women-headed households to increase their savings by more than one-fifth. It allowed 185,000 women to leave farming and develop business or retail activities, and it helped reduce extreme poverty among women-headed households by 22%. So this matters. Uh, this is like a, a, an important thing. Uh, as far as a company that can benefit from this trend, uh, there's many. Uh, that are undoubtedly going to benefit, but one that comes to mind is HDFC Bank. It's India's largest bank. India is home to the world's second largest unbanked population, second only to China, where in 2018, 190 million people did not have financial accounts. HDFC Bank has 5,400 bank branches scattered across India with a pretty even mix between rural areas and urban areas. And it's well positioned to grow its customer base of 56 million in the com coming years. Uh, despite its large physical presence, that doesn't mean HDFC is ignoring digital and mobile channels. In 2020, 95% of its customer transactions were initiated via its digital channels, which was up from just 35% in 2010. So they're, uh, they're investing in a lot of apps and unique digital channels for everything from mobile payments to saving to investing to shopping and insurance. And it's pursuing this omni-channel strategy to reach uh, India's 190 million unbanked people. That's fantastic. HDFC Bank, Matt, one you and I have talked about quite a bit over the years for sure too. Steve, any thoughts on uh, on banking, on mobile devices and financial inclusion internationally before we jump into your underappreciated story? No, I uh, Matt always sums that sector up a heck of a lot better than I can. Uh, so I, I'm always happy to, uh, to learn from him in that realm. So a uh, fantastic take on that. Do you have any bad puns or jokes like like Austin followed up with the hi-fi? At least give me something to work with. Oh, I, I've got I've got a lot of bad puns, but none related to the financial mobile banking sector, unfortunately. Okay, okay. I'll pick them up and offer them later. Simon, we, we have to put up with this on Slack. Don't subject all of our subscribers to it, too. Okay? That's right. We're a fan <laughs> of dad jokes and bad jokes. Steve has got tons of them that he throws on the Slack channel, but we'll, maybe we'll come up with something as an outtake later on. Steve, but go I, ahead. I have what? a bank joke. Can I have a bank joke? Oh, please. Go ahead, Matt. Right. Thank you. What did, the, what did the football coach say when he went to the bank? Uh, what's that? I don't know. Can I have my quarterback? <laughs> oh! <laughs> That oh, one was man. a touchdown, Matt. That was a touchdown. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> As we reach Over a new you, low. <laughs> yeah. 
and our subscribership yeah. hits on your low. Steve, you're up next. What's your underappreciated story? I'm like grimace gif right now is what's going on. Um, I uh, okay. So um, one of the things that investors read a lot about right now uh, is investing opportunities tied to the Internet of Things. And for those of you unfamiliar, or if you, you've ever wondered what the Internet of Things is, that's a trend for adding uh, internet connectivity or sensors, uh, connectivity software to increasing numbers of everyday things uh, to improve our lives. And, and you know, of course, this is a massive opportunity. There's hundreds of possible stocks to capitalize on the trend. Uh, and, you know, we're talking wireless chip manufacturers and companies that you know, analyze the data coming from these devices and the makers of the things themselves. You know, you can think of Amazon with its Echo devices and um, there's a lot of ways to capitalize, but there's one trend within the internet of things that I think is widely underappreciated right now. And that's the rise of smart homes. And uh, this is something that sort of, it's gradually happening and it's gaining steam. And, uh, you know, there's uh, several research reports uh, that were released in, in recent weeks talking about the size of the global smart home market. And most of them anticipate it uh, roughly doubling uh, or nearly tripling over the next several years. Uh, and this should be a uh, multiple hundreds of billions of dollars uh, market uh, enabled by the Internet of Things and largely spurred uh, by adoption of devices uh, like video doorbells, voice-assisted technology, smart speakers, home surveillance. Uh, and of course, all those things help make our homes smarter. Uh, but all too often, these various products uh, come from different manufacturers with different visions for how they think smart homes should operate. So uh, one company I think could benefit, should benefit, uh, and is poised to benefit from the smart home market is iRobot. And uh, maybe that'll come as no surprise to some people who followed my work before. Uh, I had a nice conversation with iRobot uh, co-founder and CEO Colin Engel back in November where he talked about their recent launch of their genius home intelligence platform. Uh, they're not just the Roomba company, you know, they're looking at taking their robots and using them as sort of a central unifying intelligence uh, for smart homes to be able to kind of tie all these pieces together and allow all of the devices to work together in a cohesive way. So uh, I really am impressed with their long-term vision for the way smart homes should play out. And I think as this market only continues to increase in size, uh, relatively small companies like that might be the best way uh, to play it rather than buying, you know, huge chip makers or, you know, big companies like Apple or Google, uh, rather Alphabet, um, in order to, to capitalize on the Internet of Things and smart homes specifically. Yeah, great point, Steve. And I know that from watching your interview with Colin, there's so much of this was the ecosystem and the interrelations between those devices in the home. Not just that it's a hardware device that's cleaning your floors, but something that's yeah. interacting. Mm -hmm. uh, really interesting to see how, how far the, all of that has come. Uh, so to recap the, the six themes that we discussed here on, on, or all of the themes that we discussed here on this show, you know, we talked about semiconductor M&A and, and how that's going to impact uh, cloud computing and, and, and devices and just a whole bunch of things. And I offered AMD as one stock pick from that. Ticker on that is also AMD. We went to Max next, who talked about genomics uh, and how that is influencing other parts of science too, such as liquid biopsies. He mentioned Gardent Health, ticker GH on that as one company that could benefit. Austin then talked about the gaps in our cellular connectivity, in the, even in the United States here, and said New Providence Acquisition Corporation, ticker NPA, was one to keep an eye on. 
went to Dan next, who said, bricks and mortar retail is not yet dead, no matter what you might think and might, he might hear out there. He said five below with the ticker FIVE was his company. Uh, Matt then talked about financial inclusion and money services uh, that are being uh, offered for developing markets. He mentioned in India, there was HDFC Bank. Take on that HDB as one company to keep an eye on. And then Steve brought it home with, uh, with smart homes and the Internet of Things with iRobot, ticker IRBT, as a company to keep an eye on. And we've got a couple minutes here before we end up the podcast. Uh, Max, maybe I'll bring it back to you. You know, we talked about genomics in your section. Any other comments about any one of these themes or companies mentioned that's intriguing to you? Yeah, I mean, for Austin, um, you know, do you think it's reasonable that definitely in our lifetimes, let's say like if I'm hiking deep in the back country, you know, is our planet just going to be blanketed in, in great reception, like in 10 or 20 years? Like, will I be able to get a cell reception out on the top of a mountain somewhere? Everywhere. You know what you're trying to do, Max? You're trying to figure out when you win that bet with Simon, if you'll have a <laughs> service where he can he can deliver it to you. Hand delivered, uh, I, $200. I, that's right. Yeah. I th- so, you know, I was um, in, in my career prior to this in the military, we often spend a lot of time out in the middle of nowhere and rely a lot on GPS connectivity with radios and things like that. That capability is out there with, you know, super expensive, not easy to use technology. So I don't think it's a stretch to think that uh, that will make its way into consumer devices with the, the growth of networks like uh, like we talked about earlier, and then partnering with cellular companies versus having to have a special device or something to do it. So I think, I think it's realistic. If we go to Mars, I can't, like we better have coverage on earth, right? Yeah. Fair point, Austin. Any other, any one of these themes or any, any questions or follow-ups you'd like to have or any of the other, the other themes presented? Yeah, I'll jump in. And Simon, I'll just say, and this has come up a lot today. So we did a seven investing now earlier, and we talked a lot about sort of misconceptions of like what people think was going to happen at the, as our government changed. What we've learned here is the conventional wisdom, the what everybody thinks is often wrong. Like groupthink tends to be, and I brought it up with, with brick and mortar is dead. A lot of those statements you hear are just factually either not true or they don't really understand the investment angle. So like we talked about earlier today with solar, just because solar might be the thing of the future doesn't mean any individual company is investable. So you really need to understand the market or at least listen to people who do understand the market before you sort of jump into things just because of like how the crowd thinks. Yeah, great point, Dan. The uh, the headlines don't always tell the whole story. Uh, Matt, Matt Cochran, any final thoughts? Any any of these themes standing out to you? Uh, I actually have a question for Steve. Steve, like how much, like, like, I mean, it seems like with a lot of companies, not just smart home companies, but like with a lot of companies, like technology and privacy are coming like to a head. And I don't mm-hmm. know how that's going to end, but for like specifically smart home technology, sure. Um, like, how do you see that playing out? Um, it's definitely a concern and companies need to walk a line uh, with that. You know, there's, there's always concerns about, okay, what is my echo listening to? You know, what's my, what's my Roomba looking at when it maps the house. And uh, these are the sorts of things that, that companies um, need to be very careful about. And that's definitely a risk to the industry overall. Uh, and it's something they've already started to navigate. You know, there was a, an uproar over iRobot a couple of years ago because um, people misconstrued some comments by management when they said that they were, uh, they said something about um, the prospect of selling data that they collect and they don't do that. 
what everybody thought they did. And, uh, you know, there's, um, yeah, so there, there's a lot of concerns about that. And, um, that's, that's, I guess, something to, uh, something to keep in mind, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a risk. Yeah. And how about it, Steve, any of these themes or any of these companies or or questions you have that, that you wanted to follow up on before we close this out? No, I'm just thinking of a bunch of dad jokes that I, I could have said now. <laughs> I have another bank follow up. <laughs> oh, Matt, you have one more? What was it? What sure. you said? One more. So I, I actually used to work at a bank, but I only lasted one day. Uh, a woman Probably came because in, of these jokes, right? Okay, keep going. A, a woman came in and asked me to check her balance, so I pushed her over. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, we'll be all here right. all week, everyone watching the show. Yeah. This is this is an did, added benefit you get from Seven yeah. Investing. Simon, did you know why Teslas are so expensive? I don't know why is that. Steve? They charge a lot. Oh I mean, gosh! <laughs> we're, we're, awesome. For everyone Wherever listening. you're going, uh, is it too late? Can I come? Uh... We'll be coming out with the Seven <laughs> Investing line of popsicle jokes. Like these are these are literally the level of joke they print on a popsicle stick. We were doing so good, guys, and then we just fell from from wherever we were. Well. <laughs> Uh, once again, thanks for listening to, to this episode of the Seven Investing Podcast. In addition to getting Matt's bank jokes and Steve's dad jokes and Austin's five below jokes, we've given you six investable themes that really aren't hitting the headlines. You know, there's so much noise out there. We are long-term investors with Seven Investing. Our recommendations that we present and we put on our scorecard, we're buying and holding indefinitely. And so long-term stories are really things that are important to us. And we encourage investors to think long-term in their own investing as well. So thanks for tuning in to this episode of our 7 Investing Podcast. We'll have more bad jokes next month. Until then, we're empowering you to invest in your future via 7 Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.